This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we are going to discuss chapters three and four of one of the most widely read American novels to ever be written, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. But before we do, we have to have our Christy fun fact. And um, I purposely never let you know we're going to do this so I can catch you off guard when I talk about it to ask you. For your response, I'm not sure it's overwhelmingly popular, except in your mind. But I oh, see you enjoy oh no. it. <laughs> We've had requests, we, and we don't want to deny our audience the request. Uh, today's fun fact: Oh dear, Christy has hiked the entire length of the Inca Trail all the way up to the top of Machu Picchu. She did not take the trolley. She did not take the short trail. She hiked the whole four-day-long trail to go to the top of Machu Picchu. Well, that's true, and I'm really proud of that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, My dad and my stepmom and my two daughters, we went. Uh, Of course, my dad was 70 at the time, so he wins the champion award. But we hiked up. We slept in tents. Uh, I will say we didn't carry our own stuff. If you hike the Inca Trail, they give you porters, which are... A beautiful thing. Well, they are. They run ahead and set up your food, and you have a nice dining experience yes, while you're walking. I felt it. elegant. <laughs> anyway, you made it to the top. Yes, and I'm you very made it proud, and it's a fantastic thing. Anyone and everyone, if you get an opportunity, explore the world, and that needs to be on your list. Okay, well, let's talk about Steinbeck because these characters are not climbing any mountains out there in California in the 1930s. Oh, no. So, uh, in week one, we introduced John Steinbeck, his ideas, his world, his worldview. We also introduced the two main characters of the book, George Milton and Lenny Small. Those are trivia questions. What were their last names? Because everybody just calls them George and Lenny. That's true. We were also introduced to the Eden-like setting where they spent their first night that was filled with wildlife and peace. And then in week two, we went to the ranch. We opened with the setting of the bunkhouse 
we met more characters, but strangely enough, uh, they're almost always initially nameless on top of the fact that they have no history and on top of the fact that Steinbeck doesn't number the chapters. So he's <laughs> got this kind of vague thing he go, he has working throughout the book. Uh, we meet Candy. We meet Candy the Swamper. We meet Slim, the king of the ranch, and his Solomon-like wisdom. We meet Curly, the rancher's son, who nobody ever likes, and his new wife named... Curly's wife. She doesn't get her own name. Then there was Carlson, some ex- an extremely sensitive farmhand. And some of this is now getting into uh, chapters three and four that we're going to look at today. That's right. We find out that uh, Curly is a small guy who picks on big guys, and Curly's wife wanders around trying to pick up other men. And then there's the dog, Candy's dog. He's old and apparently stinks right and we'll find out more about that in this section so that about sums up the action in chapters one and two uh and i do want to make an interesting caveat if you are a student in america or in great britain you are more likely to have been required to read this book uh i read somewhere that between 80 to 90 percent of all gcse students that's uh those in Great Britain's pursuing a certificate of secondary education will be required to read this book. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, If you're a teacher, this is like one-stop shopping for everything that you're supposed to be teaching about understanding literature. And I really want to make that important point because we're going to spend a little bit of time on the front end talking about things that Uh, You may remember from school, you may not, but some of the things that we always look for in books, because they're all here uh, in this this short little story. I want to organize our discussion because of that just a little differently and kind of go through some of these elements one by one. That way, when we read the book, we kind of know what we're looking for uh, before we get there. So authors have, I guess, these little tricks that they use to kind of communicate what they're trying to say uh, about the world, and Steinbeck is going to use a lot of them. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. We're going to see personal symbols. We're going to see archetypes, motifs, biblical allusions, and foreshadowing. Those are the kind of big ones that I want to talk about. He's going to try to make a real relevant social commentary that's particularly relevant to what was going on in the 1930s, especially out in California. But he's also going to layer this with a lot of ancient ideas, lots of them biblical, about the nature of man. And some of these ideas are thousands of years old. And the archetypes, I want to point out, are pre-biblical. They they date way well beyond uh, what we would normally understand to be modern literature. So there's something for everyone in this book, and the discussion that we're going to have here in chapter three and four is hopefully going to lay out some of those those things. Well, it's great that you brought out that point that this book is short, and it covers all this wide range of literary techniques, which is part of its appeal, I'm sure, over time. And uh, like we told you before in previous podcasts, it's the most widely read American book outside the United States. Yeah, they're mostly, you know, when you get to school, there's the books that the kids like, which are few and far between, and then the (laughs) the books that the teachers like, and there's a very, very small group that they both like. And students generally like this book. It's not often that you can 
cuss. I mean, this book has so much cussing, and it's not even angry cussing like we've seen. It's just the it's the way that people talk, and it has prostitutes in it, and it has violence in it, and you know. People love that stuff, and the teachers will put up with it because it has what they love. So, something for everyone. There you go. So, uh, let's start with spoiling the plot of these two chapters, uh, and let me tell you what's going to happen. We like to get that out of the way so we can get down to the literary side of learning about the book. So, first, George tells Slim what happened in Weeds, uh, a story he actually goes over twice in the book. He tells Slim that Lenny saw a girl... Wearing a red dress, he tried to pet the dress. He got scared. She ran and told the authorities he'd tried to rape her, and they had to hide and escape by sitting in an irrigation ditch underwater all day. Then Carlson comes in complaining about Candy's dog until he convinces Candy to let him shoot the dog, which is not going to go over well with our dog lovers. <laughs> all the while, George is playing solitaire. So another character named Wit comes in, and he tries to play another card game, but it basically goes back to solitaire. Wit tells George about the prostitute house, or, you know, we'll, we'll use that as a polite term, uh, for the prostitute house. They all like to go to and invites him to go out with them. George spends two pages talking about their dream of the ranch. And while he's talking about it with Lenny, Candy hears it, and Candy wants in on a dream and surprisingly enough has money and he is willing to pay for it and he can buy into it. And so in the midst of all that, Curly comes in in his same horrible fashion, accusing Slim of cheating with his wife, which Slim denies. You have to remember Slim is the, the most wise Solomon-like character in the whole book. Curly sees Lenny smiling. Lenny's smiling because he's thinking about tending the rabbits, but Curly thinks he's laughing, uh, being laughed at by Lenny. So Curly uses it as a reason to punch Lenny. He smashes Lenny's nose. George finally tells Lenny to get him, and Lenny grabs Curly by the hand, basically breaking every single bone in his hand, and Curly lying around on the floor flopping like a fish, as one of the descriptions says. And Chapter 3 ends with Carlson taking Curly to the hospital and Slim making him swear not to tell how his hand got hurt. And all this occurs through six basic conversation plots in that one chapter. And that's kind of the fun chapter. Chapter four is a little bit more boring. Uh, it takes place in Crook's room. All the guys have gone to the prostitute house, except those that weren't invited, which is Crook's, Candy, and Lenny. So Lenny's out there trying to hang out in the barn because of the puppies, and he just kind of finds Crooks, and he imposes himself on Crooks, and then Candy comes out. And the chapter is mostly a conversation between these men. Uh, the most controversial thing that happens is at the end, Curly's wife goes out to the barn. Basically, she wants to know why Hurley, Curly's hand is busted up. They don't tell. She tries to force Crooks by saying she's going to get him lynched. And, of course, the only reason he gets out of that is because Candy claims the other men are coming, she kind of gets frightened by that, thinks she's going to get caught, and leaves. Yeah, and, and I think Chapter 4, the discussion in Crook's room, is really about Steinbeck highlighting the loneliness of the drifter lifestyle. And he's just speaking through Crook's at that point. So there's a lot going on there, too. Sure, but I mean, it's not as fun. Nobody gets busted <laughs> up. <laughs> okay. I, I see you enjoy the violence. Yes, I do. All right. So... Um, 
I want to start with the characters. There's a lot to say about each one of them, and we talked a lot about of them last week. But I wanted this week to kind of point out uh, this idea that they're very archetypal. Now, we've used that word with every single episode. We talked about it with Lords of the Flies. We've talked about it uh, with Scarlet Letter and with Fahrenheit. But we really haven't gotten around to explaining what archetypes are. And it's a bit of a psychology thing. So tell us... uh, what a Carl Jungian archetype actually is. Okay, that's a great question. And uh, archetypes are so prevalent in literature, so we do need to discuss that and kind of reinforce that. Carl Jung uh, is a psychodynamic psychologist, and the, 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 the founding layer of his basic theory is that humans have existed under evolutionary pressure. And because of evolutionary pressure, they developed repetitive patterns of thinking, repetitive patterns of interpreting the world, repetitive patterns in understanding the world. And his idea is that these repetitive patterns show up in the stories and the fables and in the myths of every society. And there, there are some that are common across every culture around the world and across time. So Jung's theory is basically that humans continue to act in very predictable patterns using very predictable explanations no matter what part of the world they're from or whatever time frame they're from. So literary people would seize on these archetypes and work them in the books so that people could identify with characters. Well, I remember when I first started learning about this and and my my teacher told me, you know, why does red mean love and passion and why does it also mean anger and hate? And, and we think, well, that's just because that's what our culture teaches us. And she says, well, what about other cultures? Did you know that nobody talked to these people? They didn't talk to each other, but they all kind of agreed to have the same color represent the same thing across time and space. It seems a little strange. And it is a little strange. And, and the stories are also the call to adventure is in every mm-hmm. culture. There's a flood story in every culture. And it's the really... The hero fa- element. The hero uh, is in every... The trickster. You know, a lot of these things that we see uh, across all genres of literature are kind of these same stories. So, And what I want to highlight once again from what we already said is that the good authors understand the archetypes and they purposely put them in the story, not accidentally, but they do it purposely like Steinbeck has. Well, that's true, but, but some people would say, and I'm, I mean, I'm not an expert to be honest, but that sometimes they don't even realize that they're doing it. They well, just since it's Jungian would say it's in your brain. Jung says it's so deeply ingrained it just it is. It just is. It just is. So people argue about what that's about and I don't I don't know what it's about. I'm not gonna argue into that but But it's in this book. But it is in this book and we're gonna see some common and I will say this, not everything is an archetype. Uh, I, w- I was interested to know that the number 13 is not an archetypal number. We think that's the number of bad luck in our culture, but it, that is not a number that crosses time mm-hmm. and space. The number three being a number for divinity is archetypal. So, you know, not everything. So there's long lists. I mean, there's hundreds of yes. these. I couldn't remember all of them. Uh, but some of them always come out. And uh, we see some very basic uh, and ones that recur occur a lot in this particular book. And I think you, you're absolutely right. This is completely intentional. It's not in mm. his subconscious. He, well, he did this in a very deliberate way. And it's very interesting that he's going to take Jungian archetypes and connect them with his evolutionary view of the isolation and 
pointlessness of man. Yeah, in the I mean, drifter lifestyle. there's no one more evolutionary than Stein. Well, there might be someone more evolutionary in their writing than him, but no, no one is popular, perhaps, yes. than him. So let's take a look at, first of all, our first two characters and, and who they kind of represent. George. Now, George, and I mentioned this last week, he's an everyman. What's that mean? He's you and me, and we are really supposed to be able to identify with him. He's not a kingly character. He's not a perfect character. He's not even a hero. He's just a dude. Mm -hmm. So we got that guy. Then we have Lenny, and he has often been called a wise fool. And that's, of course, an oxymoron because there's certain things that he's obviously stupid about i mean he can't even remember from one moment to the next but we're going to see that there's some things that he can see and understand that other people that are smarter than him really cannot and that's a common literary technique that that shows up in many many stories that whenever you need some kind of truth to be spoken in the situation you bring in the yeah. fool to say it and then they exit the conversation sometimes it's a child you know you have yeah. the story and the the kid goes that man's a creeper. And everyone goes, no, he's not. That's wonderful. He's a wonderful man. And only the kid can identify whatever right. it is that's wrong. Yeah, so that's common. Uh, I want to say that Steinbeck was asked about Lenny, which I found interesting. He said this, Lenny is not supposed to represent insanity at all, but the inarticulate and powerful yearning of all men. So in other words, there is kind of an element that in some weird way we're He's also an everyman, although he's clearly a wise fool to some degree. But there's a bit of everyone uh, in Lenny as well, if you strip it down that far into your most basic and innocent version of yourself. And I think it's great. He says he's not supposed to represent insanity at all because it's, I want to point out, there is no really mentally ill behavior or... That's true. It's in, just simple. In Lenny. Yeah. He's, his processing is very low grade. Right. So then we have Slim, and of course he's the kingly character. He's not a hero, but uh, he is described as the king of the ranch, and he has all this wisdom, and everyone does what he says. And of course, like in this particular chapter, Carlson wants to kill the dog, and Candy doesn't really want to, but when Slim weighs in, then of course they're going to do whatever Slim says. And Slim is so powerful that he weighs in with silence. <laughs> A lot of times he does. Yes, he and that silence. carries the day. <laughs> yeah. Then we have all the C characters. Now, these are our archetypal outcasts, and we see something really interesting going on here. Uh, and this is where if you have any kind of biblical knowledge, which you should, because if you want to be a student of Western literature, you really need to know uh, a little bit or even a lot about the Bible. It, the chapters 1, 2, 3 of the book of Genesis really inform the writings of this particular book. And we see this with this, these C characters. They're all outcasts because Cain, and he's going to combine archetypes with biblical things, which don't always combine, but they do here. So the C characters are all arcane-like characters. And if you remember, Cain is an outcast in, in, in the story of Genesis. He's thrown out of the community. For murdering his brother Abel. For murdering his brother Abel. And why he murdered his... And they're not saying that all these people are murderers. They're clearly not. But why he murdered his uh, brother was because uh, he wanted to be something that his brother was. His brother had done something right and he had done something wrong. So instead of seeing how he could correct his own behavior, Cain becomes consumed with envy and jealousy and it ultimately led him to death. Now these characters don't do that. But what we see is that they 
they are consumed with things that they're not in some way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Candy is discriminated against and he's an outcast because of his age and because of his handicap. Crook is discriminated against and he's an outcast because of his race. Curly clearly is an, he's the most pure, awful person here. He's an outcast in in some way because of of his own essence. Mm -hmm. He's a bully. And of course, Curly's wife is an interesting combination of certain things too. Uh, She's obviously there um, seducing all these men. Plus she wears red, the archetypal color of love, sin, blood, etc. And I would like to qualify the word seducing. Uh, the seducing really comes across as just trying to exercise power over them and, and to scare them and, and terrify them. Sure, but you know I wouldn't put it past her. But <laughs> yes, uh, if th- that would work. No, yeah, if it will work. But she's also an Eve-like character. Um, she's tricked by Curly into marrying her, and we're going to see in you know the next chapters that she's not just a temptress, and although she is a temptress, and she was responsible. For the ails of mankind in the same way that Eve is, uh, she's also subjected, just like Eve, to be ruled over by men. And of course, this is a burden uh, that you see very clearly as oppressive uh, in the story. And then, of course, there's Carlson, the other C. I think he's the most unlikable. He's pretty much as unlikable as Curly. He's so apathetic. He's callous. He's a completely and totally selfish person in the book and he basically comes across as having no feelings at all at all true um and what about the non-c character wit Uh, yeah yeah i don't know wit's not important i think that's why his name doesn't start with a c he doesn't fit in the box and he's a normal guy and he doesn't he's not an outcast he's playing cards he's just one of the dudes he's going to the Susie House, if you want to call it that. <laughs> the Susie House, well, or the Clara House, which yeah. we'll discuss here. Well, one thing I want to say about Wit, you know, in Chapter 3, he is conversation number 3. And to me, he's kind of a, a holding place. We've had the big conversation between Candy and Carlson and the killing the dog. And then conversation number 4 is Curly bursting in. And so this conversation with George and Wit's kind of... Uh, uh, a transition almost between those two conversations and of course he's got the most interesting comment he says Curly's wife she's a Lulu a Lulu Woo-hoo. well let's just review bottom line is an archetype is supposed to represent a type of person that actually exists in the world and has existed in all communities in all cultures so the, the branch house is a community and each one of these people represent a certain kind of person that exists in this particular world and this world if you take out the cultural context could be any world and in that sense this book is allegorical it's representing something more than just the ranch so Steinbeck to take all these people that uh, are actually interact in the world he throws them in a ranch and then he's going to stir the pot causing a conflict and let them loose and see what happens all right so this book has got a lot of archetypes it also has a lot of symbols and several motifs now motif is also something that repeats over and over again and of course archetypes can be motifs but we're going to see several of these 
Um, the symbol of the rabbits, they keep, they just, it keeps coming back. It started in the first chapter and we're going to see these rabbits. They come back over and over again. The telling of this dream, that's a motif. It's going to go over and come out over and over and over again. Death itself is something that comes up. There's dead mice, then there's the dead dog. And then you're like, uh oh, what's going to come next? We yes. don't know. Right. And the dog dying is also an obvious example of foreshadowing. Um, you're supposed to go, they're killing a dog. What's that got to do with anything? It's, it seems like a side conversation. You don't understand why is Carlson fixated on this dog in the middle of all these other conversations. Uh, so and then you're supposed to go, oh no, I hope it doesn't mean someone else is going to get shot. Who? Exactly right. And of course, the foreshadowing is supposed to be uh, a large enough event that, uh, that you're for sure going to catch it. So, what do all these animal symbols represent, and how do we make sense of them? Well, you're not really supposed to know. You're supposed to kind of unravel this as you go. Uh, let's look at some of the most obvious, and I'm going to tell you what I think. And then as you read the story, as you listen to us discuss the story, you can decide if you agree or disagree. Because they're ambiguous enough, you know, there's, uh, there's room to, to bait. Uh, I'm going to suggest that the mice represent hope. Uh, but, of course... I, the reason why I suggest this and in, in Steinbeck world, what's wrong with this? The hope is going to be crushed dead, <laughs> or, or exactly. petted to death or thrown into yeah. the weeds or whatever. It, hope provides um, reality. I mean, provides comfort for people. Uh, but in this world, it's not real. It's, it's always dead. Well, in one of the major side discussions that comes up again and again is about this ranch. And the ranch represents hope. It's all about hope and having meaning. Right. And it's a very naturalistic idea that hope is not a thing. It's an, it's an illusion. So then let's look about rabbits. Rabbits, to me, are a little bit more complex. Of course, the rabbits are connected to the dream. They came out of the dream in the first chapter in the first garden. That's where the rabbits actually were alive and living uh, I've read people say they represent the Garden of Eden from the first chapter. It's a place of peace, harmony, away from the mean people. But even in the first chapter, we're going to see that there's not any real rabbits. The ones in the first chapter, if you remember, there's that conversation. They're not even realistic. They were, they were always fictional. So that's another idea to just kind of float in your head when you, when you hear them talking about it. It's a dream, but do they really believe in it? It makes me wonder if the rabbits represent bounty and plentiful and abundance. Yeah, maybe they do. You know, it's something, you know, what do these concepts embody? And I think they embody more than just one thing. They're not simple. Uh, now, then we're going to see where you see all this biblical references um and this starts with the naming of the character george's name is george milton now milton isn't a very common name he is the everyman but his most famous i guess predecessor would probably be the famous john milton now john milton wrote one of the most influential books in the english language called paradise lost which of course is what we're going to see mm, here we're seeing paradise getting lost yes and it's about the fall of man. So is George going to fall? Not to spoil the next section, but it, it's something to think about. And of course, I already talked about Cain and all the outcasts. And of course, we see him borrowing heavily from all those ideas. So there are all kinds of shades of meaning 
And yes, people say, did they really do that on purpose? And yes, they really do do them on purpose. And that is the artistic part of being a writer. You know, so to people who don't know this about literature, they think, oh, somebody sat down and came up with a great story. They don't understand there's an art form involved and that, that these writers are purposely trying to uh, incorporate all kind of little interesting tidbits for those who have eyes to see. That's right. Um, I mean, not every book is like that, but the ones that we're going to study truly, really are. The books like this that become classics have that often. All right. So having gone through archetypes, foreshadowing, biblical references, symbols, motifs, throw that all together, the literary mumbo-jumbo soup, we're going to stir it up, and then we're going to see... Uh, what actually happens in the story. And I, I know we don't want to just like read over every single thing, but let's no, kind of talk through it. we can synopsize this. And like I said about chapter three, there are six basic core conversations that occur in this chapter. And they're between different people and they set different scenes. Right. So the first conversation is Slim and George. What do you think are the most distinctive things that come out of that? Uh, well, first of all, Slim is a character who's purposely trying to gain the confidence and trust of George, which is an unusual characteristic. When uh, Steinbeck spends so much time talking about this this drifter, disconnected loner lifestyle, so Slim and George are having a conversation, and they want and basically Slim wants to know what happened back there in Weed, and George will tell him what happened. He right. relays the story to him. I really do think you're supposed to see a contrast between. All the other men and the relationship between George and Lenny. George and Lenny have a special relationship. And, you know, it says that George speaks proudly of Lenny. And they're not, it's not normal. They're not sexually involved. They're not relatives. So they're brothers in a human sense. And we're really supposed to see them as this idea of two people that are living in are you my brother's keeper uh, kind of relationship Exactly. versus these other men uh, who are really in it for themselves. And of course, in this conversation, and I'm going to censor our language. I do want to read some portions of this book. And in the past, we've just kind of read through the profanity to try to be authentic. But this book has too much. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't really want to do that. I think it'll... It'll take away. They're not trying to communicate anger. They're not insulting God like we saw in some of the past books. So I'm going to kind of censor the the language a little bit. But in this uh, conversation, we really see the highlighting of the loneliness. That's what you're talking about. And oh yeah, and let me interrupt with that whole idea. That's another fascination that Slim has with George and Lenny. It's a world of drifters, and they're all disconnected. And so. I get the impression Slim's thinking, well, not not so much do I suspicion you all of something bad, but it's like, I'm curious how you get to have a friend in this world. Right, because the natural condition is to be in it for yourself. He says the normal condition is no one, he says, never seem to give a darn about nobody. It just seems kind of funny, a cuckoo like him and a smart guy like you traveling together. And of course, George is going to say, he ain't no cuckoo. He's dumb as hell, but he ain't crazy. And I ain't so bright neither. I wouldn't be bucking barley for my 50 and found. So he defends, uh, of course, again, that relationship mm-hmm. that they have. But we also see that the natural order of nature 
is everyone is looking out for themselves. And so their relationship is really in defiance yes. of what is naturally occurring uh, everywhere else. And it gets questioned by not just Slim, but by the owner of the ranch and other people. Oh, yeah. Everyone. No one understands it. And then they just kind of accept it. And, of course, Slim is going to say he's a nice fella. Guys need no sense to be a nice fella. I like that guy. A guy don't need no sense to be a nice fella. So your virtue is independent of your intellect. Seems to me sometimes it just works the other way around. Take a real smart guy, and he ain't hardly ever a nice guy, a nice fella. Now, they do write in all this dialect, which Mm kind of makes it a little bit hard to read. So I stumble over this, but it's nice. You know, it makes it sound very authentic. Mm -hmm. And George says, I ain't got no people. I've seen the guys that go around on the ranches alone. That ain't no good. They don't have no fun. After a long time, they get mean. They get wanting to fight all the time. And so we're going to see what's the evolutionary nature of, of isolation. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, an important idea. Here. It is so important. It's going to come up in the next chapter with Crooks. Crooks is going to talk about the same topic from a different perspective. So then we get to the second conversation. Candy and Carlson. What's the deal with that? Well, they start talking about the old dog. Now, Candy uh, is the the ranch hand who's lost a hand. He has one hand. And he has this old, old, decrepit dog that's in bad health and it stinks. And Carlson, who is just another random ranch hand that works there, starts obsessing about this dog and, and won't let go of it. And it's obvious that... Candy has a relationship with this dog. And he doesn't care. And he doesn't care. All he can think about is, I don't know, he's, he's just fixated on dealing with this stinking old dog. Well, I've met so many Carlsons in my life. He walks in the door, and the first thing he does is he complains. He's going to say, darker in hell in here. And he, then he, you know, he slams an African-American, uh, and then... Because he, he's mad because he gets beat. Uh, he can't beat um, crooks in horseshoes. horseshoes. And then so there's a complaint about that. So he complains about crooks being so good at horseshoes. He complains about how dark it is. Then he starts in on the dog. And what's interesting to me is that he obsesses about the dog. He can let other things go. But for some reason, he starts digging in on Candy. And he says... Basically, he accuses Candy of not being merciful. He says, that dog, he can't eat. He don't have no fun. You ain't kind keeping him alive, trying to shame Candy into doing something about it. But at the end of the day, it's he doesn't really even care about those things. Those are all just arguments that he's right. making. Because we see after then, the reason why he won't let go, he says, he's we can't sleep with him stinking around here. So he won't let it go. He won't even let him have one more night. He's going to basically demand his way. This this guy is going to be what we call low in agreeableness. <laughs> For sure. So they go, and then of course, you know, Candy doesn't want to. He said, I'm used to him. I've had him from a pup. And of course, so much for that. Slim says, well, I'll give you a new pup in some sort of compassionate kind of way. And so when Slim won't back him up on this, Candy knows he has no argument and so now, uh, you know, Carlson's been blurting out, if you want me to, I'll put that old devil out of his misery right now. And he says, I've got a gun. Let's get it over with. And Candy will give in. And let me point out that all the time, George is playing 
solitaire. Mm-hmm. He's playing a card game by himself because you, everyone is in it for herself. Now, Wit's going to try to play with him this other game called Euchre, which I don't know what that is. But they, they try to play it for a little bit, but they, he goes back to playing solitaire. And, we're, and that's another motif. It's gonna, we're just going to see okay. that. Everybody playing their own game. Well, and, and to add to that isolation, when Carlson finally leaves with the dog to take him out to shoot him, everybody, they have this scene in the bunkhouse where nobody will make eye contact, nobody will talk, and they're all just sitting there awkwardly and quiet, waiting, 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 and finally they hear the gunshot, and Candy lays there for a moment, and then he just rolls over and faces the wall. It's so sad. It's terribly sad. And it, yes, there's a, there's a lot going on there. All right. Well, then we have the third conversation, and that's between Wit and George. And this is kind of funny. I mean, I don't know. It's like a tension breaker <laughs> before we go to the next tension. Yeah. So you want to talk about this? this is yeah. <laughs> that's where Wit says, hey, you seen the new kid? Curly's wife. She's a Lulu. And I love George's uh, reaction. George says, she's going to make a mess, a bad mess. She's jailbait, all set on the trigger. Yeah. And she's then they, got the eye. She's got the eye. And then they go on to a discussion about uh, the uh, the pros and cons of the two competing houses of prostitution nearby, Susie and Clara's. Well, and I want to point out all the women in this book, poor things. You ha- they're all they're sexualized in nature. You have Susie who's marketing sex, and then you have. Uh, Curly's wife, who's given it a go unsuccessfully. Well, or, or using it as a weapon. Yeah, using it. And that's all that the women really are. Of course, Susie's making a lot of money. $2.50. I mean, you can do the math on how... Uh, she. I mean, there's a I lot of euphemisms over we can here. Probably uh, but go. they call it a cat house, which I, I hadn't heard that expression. And But it's just kind of funny. And uh, George is like, okay, uh, I'm not going to... I don't. I'm not going to participate because I'm trying to save my money. Right, but trying I'll go to build for the stake. Acti- yeah, uh, but I'll go for the activity, and that's kind of uh, how they end that. And so they have their discussion about the uh, competing financial benefits of the two houses of prostitution, and all of a sudden, Curly, which you, his name never means anything good, he bursts into the room for conversation number four and says, any of you guys seen my wife, which is a motif in itself. Yes. And and uh, I want to say this to uh, point out, Curly looks weak to these men. He looks jealous. Uh, he looks like he's controlling of his wife. He's highly insecure. He represents a lot of uh, negative characteristics in men. Well, and of course, he's going to march out looking for the woman, and he, and he thinks she's eyeing Slim, and I think she probably has been eyeing Slim, but Slim is not giving her any kind of attention. Well, he's the, he's the biggest trophy amongst the men, if there are any. Yes. So then we get to this, uh, what I, I think, more interesting discussion between Lenny and George, and we're going to go over the whole dream one more time. And of course... Lenny wants George to say, go on, tell again, George. And then George is going to tell the dream. Well, it's 10 acres. 
Got a little windmill, got a little shack on it, and a chicken run. Got a kitchen, orchard, cherries, apples, peaches, cots, nuts, and a few berries. There's a place for alfalfa and plenty water to flood it. There's a pig pen and rabbits, George. No place for rabbits now, but I could easy build a few hatches and you could feed alfalfa to the rabbits. Darn right I could, said Lenny. You darn right I could. And then, of course, uh, George is going to go on. And his voice is going to get warmer because this makes Lenny happy. It softens everybody yeah. after intense conversations. And we could have a few pigs. I could build a smokehouse like the one Grandpa had. And when we could kill a pig, we can smoke the bacon and the hams and make sausage and all like that. And when the salmon run up river, we could catch a hundred of them and salt them down or smoke them. And we can have them for breakfast. They ain't nothing so nice as smoked salmon. When the fruit comes in, we could can it. And tomatoes, they're easy to can. Every Sunday, we get a kill a chicken or a rabbit maybe we'd have a cow or a goat and the cream is so darn thick you got to cut it with a knife and take it out with a spoon and of course Lenny's gonna watch his eyes are wide and Candy's watching too and Lenny says that very famous line and live off the fat of the land sure said George all kinds of vegetables in the garden and if we want a little whiskey we can sell a few eggs or something or some milk we just live there we'd belong there there wouldn't be no more running around the country and getting fed by a Jap cook. No, sir, we'd have our own place where we belonged and not sleep in no bunkhouse. Then, of course, Lenny's going to say, Tell about the house, George. Sure, we'd have a little house and a room to ourselves. A little fat iron stove in the winter. We'd keep a fire going in it. And ain't enough land, so we'd have to work. we'd have to work too hard, maybe six, seven hours a day. We wouldn't have to buck no barley 11 hours a day. And we put in a crop, why, we'd be there to take the crop up. We'd know what come of our planting. And rabbits, Lenny said eagerly, and i take care of them. Tell how I'd do that, George. Sure, you'd go out to the alfalfa patch and you'd have a sack. You'd fill up the sack and bring it in and put it in the rabbit's cage. They'd nibble it and they'd nibble, said Lenny, the way they do. I seen them. Every six weeks or so, them does would throw a litter so we'd have plenty of rabbits to eat and to sell and we'd keep a few pigeons to go flying around the windmill like they done when I was a kid and it be our own and nobody can, could can us and if we don't like a guy we can say get the heck out and by darn he's got to do it and if a friend come along why well, we'd have an extra bunk and we'd say why don't you spend the night and by darn it he would We'd have a setter dog and a couple of striped cats, but you gotta watch out. Those cats don't get the rabbits. Lenny breathed hard. You just gotta try to get the rabbits. I'll break their darn necks. I'll I'll smash them with a stick. And of course, George is now entranced with his own picture. Yeah, they're they're caught up in their vision of hope. And the funny thing is, is that George is the one that realizes. This is not ever going to happen, but he likes to tell the story because it makes Lenny happy. And I want to point this out. This is a short book of roughly 100 pages, and he spends, as an author, over two pages detailing this dream. I guess that's going to, when you devote 2% to yeah. tell a story, that, that tells you this is an important part and of the story. he's going to do it more than once. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Candy's going to listen to this, and this becomes the next very important conversation. Very important conversation. Uh, because all of a sudden, Candy says, you know, where's a place like that? And 
it sounds wonderful to him. And now he's interested in the farm dream. And not only that, Candy has money. And George doesn't. He goes, yeah, I do. And I, and I, and I know how much it costs. And then Candy wants to get in because he knows, he says, I lost my right hand here on this ranch. That's why they give me a job swamping and they give me $250 could I lost my hand. And he's going to say, suppose I went in with you guys. And all of a sudden, there's this mesmerizing effect where all three of these people look at each other and this vague, distant dream just got super close and potentially real. And the effect it has on them is very interesting. Yes, they fall into silence. They look at one another. This thing, it's what it says. This thing that had never they had never really believed in was completely true. And within reach. And now all of a sudden, hope is going to permeate all of them. The hope of escape, the hope of independence, the hope of a place, the hope of, for some roots and some ownership. And all of a sudden, it's real. And George is going to stand up. We'll do her. We'll fix up that little old place and we'll go live there. He's going to sit down again and they all sit, all bemused by the beauty of the thing. Each mind was popped into the future when this lovely thing should come about. There you go. What a great way to end the chapter. Except it doesn't end there. <laughs> no. They do say, they give themselves a timeline though. They got two, all they need is one month. Mm-hmm. For $150 they're in. To get their stake together. To get their stake together. And then, in the middle of all that bliss, Curly busts in one more time and destroys the scene. Of course, he's all mad, accusing Slim. Slim's hands are covered with tar because he's been out in the barn, and Slim's not taking it. And of course, uh, Carlson just laughs because he's so tickled that he's laughing at Curly, mocking him. You, GD punk, he said. You tried to throw a scare into Slim, and you couldn't make it stick. Slim throwed a scare into you. You're yellow as a frog belly. I don't care if you. You are the best wilter in the country. I know I'm not reading that right. But, of course, and then Candy's going to laugh, too. And he's going to go, glove full of Vaseline, he says disgustedly. And Curly just glares at both of them. But the person who gets the brunt is Lenny. And I want to say something about that. Because you have to wonder, Lenny's the obvious biggest guy in the room. Why at this moment does Lenny get attacked when the other guys don't? And it's... I want to point this out. It's his body language. And and Steinbeck went to great lengths to portray this earlier on. Uh, There's a very interesting study out there where they question criminals about when criminals rob people, how do you mark your victim from any other random person? And even if criminals could not put it into words, what they always said was this. We basically pick out our victim based on their body language. If they have a defeatist body language or if they have a vulnerable body language that the criminals are intuitively drawn towards them. And so you've got Curly who looks around the room and all the other men are standing up to him. And then you've got Lenny over there in a the corner being evasive and looking uh, weak. And so now Curly's going to go after him. And that's what he does. He backs him into the wall. He is slashes at him with his left hand. He smashes his nose with his right. And Lenny doesn't fight back. And so then George says, get him, Lenny. Don't let him do it. And there he goes. And And Lenny grabs him by the hand and crushes his hand and has him flopping around on the floor like a fish on a hook. That's exactly how it's described. Yep. Of course, Carlson is in charge of hauling him out. 
and Slim makes him say, I don't, I think you got your hand caught in a machine. Don't tell nobody what happened and we won't tell nobody what happened. So they hold a thread of shame over Curly. Yes. And of course, the last thing that Lenny says is, I can still tend the rabbits. He's worried about the rabbits. He has no understanding of of what just happened. Right. All right, very quickly, chapter four. Yes, um, because chapter four to me is more of the same, but from a different angle, because they talk to Crooks, who is the uh, the black man that's the, the, the horseshoer and lives in his own separate compartment away from the, the bunkhouse. In some ways, he is, uh, first of all, he's more intelligent than the other men, and he's richer. He has more stuff. He has several pairs of shoes, a pair of rubber boots, a big alarm clock, and a single-barreled shotgun. He, uh, he has a dictionary and a California Civil Code for 1905, lots of, of things. So he's a proud man. He's described In as... In books. He's a proud, aloof man. Uh, but he's also very bitter because he's clearly been relegated to the barn, and he knows what that is. I mean, he's smart enough to understand understand what's going on. And he also knows that he's in some ways superior to all these other men. And how dare they, uh, how are they able to express this kind of world or this kind of hierarchy? And it's not based on competence necessarily. No. And uh, Lenny wanders over to Crook's room, which nobody ever goes into Crook's room. But Lenny wanders over to Crook's room because all the men have gone to Susie's and Clara's for the night. So... Uh, Crooks doesn't want him in there, but Lenny wants to see the puppies that he has, and so that's how they initiate this this contact. And there's a little bit of a moment where Crooks is describing himself, and he has an interesting line, and he says this, I ain't a Southern Negro. I was born right here in California. So he's making a distinction about that, which I find very interesting that Steinbeck wants to elaborate upon that. Yes, he's trying to show the egalitarian nature of how maybe things should be. He says, my old man had a chicken ranch. He was a landowner. The white kids come to play at our place, and sometimes I went to play with them, and some of them was pretty nice. So there is this, and this is where you see Steinbeck getting into social commentary. This is clearly something that we're supposed to see as completely wrong. But, of course, it goes way over Lenny's head. He doesn't understand. Right, Lenny's just there for the puppies. No, he has no idea what discrimination and is. it's interesting historically because after the Civil War in the 1870s, during towards the end of Reconstruction, there was something called the Exoduster Movement where you had about 40,000 former slaves that moved out of the South and they went to Kansas and even farther westward. So, uh, and they were primarily drawn to those states after the Civil War because of the wide openness of them, uh, the uh, the fluidity of the culture there. And what I find interesting about crooks here in the store is that by the time this story is going on, California was already very ethnically diverse. They'd had several ways of Chinese immigrant labor, Japanese immigrant labor, uh, heavily influenced Hispanic labor. So Steinbeck would have been in a culture where there was already a huge mix. Well, and Crooks is very wise in what he observes about the world. And it's interesting that it's through the mouth of Crooks that we see a lot of the thematic development. He says things like this, a guy needs somebody to be near him. Yes. A guy goes nuts if he ain't got nobody. Don't make no difference who the guy is. Long as he's with you, I tell you. I tell you, a guy gets too lonely and he gets sick. 
And of course, Lenny has no understanding what he's talking about. And then Crooks is going to go by and talk about the other men. I've seen hundreds of men come by this ranch and with their bindles on their back. Hundreds of them. And they come and they quit and they go on. Every darn one of them has a piece of land in his head. And never a darn one of them ever gets it. Just like heaven. Everybody wants a piece of land. I read plenty of books. Nobody ever gets to heaven and nobody gets no land. It's just in their heads. So he is, of course seeing what the reality of the American dream has been for these people, this idea of disillusionment, of loneliness, all of this is coming out through the mouth of Crooks. And of course it's completely lost on can on Lenny. Lenny. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that, that talk, Crook lightens up and he says, you've got George. Yeah. And, and I think it's a great point that Crooks is making about how difficult it is when you have no relationship, which is a theme of the whole entire book. Crooks remembers life with his brothers and what it was like to run around there. Uh, and so anyway, in the middle of that conversation between he and Lenny, which is really a one-sided conversation, Candy shows up. And so now they've got this discussion where Candy's talking about uh, the, the the dream the hope and he sees maybe they might could pull it off and of course and with all this um well he actually wants to get in on it at one point he, he says, does yeah. he he kind of softens his edge and he basically says well you know even though i have a bent back and I, i'm still worthy and i can work hard when i want to and if you need somebody to come along so he's what i find interesting is that now this party of hope is up to four yeah and then, of course, Curly's wife comes in, and she's awful. She says, funny thing, if I catch any one man and he's alone, I get along fine with him, but let two of these guys get together and you won't talk. Just nothing but mad. You're all scared of each other, that's what. Every one of you scared the rest is going to get something on you. And, of course, that's probably true. She tries to find out what happened to Curly, and it's a really offensive conversation. She's... She comes down hard on Crooks. Because well, Crooks stands up to her. And she can. She's going to exert her power over him. Uh, and he's going to say, "You don't, yeah, you don't have a right to come in here. And she says, well, listen, I can lie about you. I can say whatever I want. The bottom line is that Curly's wife is terrorizing all these men and insulting all of them. And when they, she threatens to do all kinds of damage to if they stand up and finally Candy's had enough and he says you ain't wanted here we told you you ain't and I tell you you got floozy ideas about what us guys amounts to you ain't got sense enough in that chicken head to even see that we ain't stiff suppose you get us canned suppose you do you think we'll hit the highway and look for another lousy two-bit job like this you don't know that we got our own ranch to go to our own house we ain't got to stay here we got a house and chickens and fruit trees and a place a hundred times prettier than this. And we got friends. That's what we got. Maybe there was a time when we were scared of getting canned, but we ain't no more. We got our land and it's ours and we're going to it. So Candy spills the dream to Curly's wife and her reaction is not good. No, she bullies Crooks to the point that he's going to drop out and he's going to say... Just forget it. I didn't mean it. Just fooling. I wouldn't want to go no place like that. And we have a sad, sad moment at the end. Right. 
All right. Well, that was a lot to go through. There is a lot to go through, but we had to explain some archetypes and some other basic things and then give you the story outline there. And um, uh, you know what? It just doesn't end on an encouraging note. And we got two more chapters left. And there's a lot of action packed into the last two chapters. So don't skip it. You'll enjoy chapters five and six. Yes. All right. So if you like what you're hearing on How to Love It podcast, we always invite you to come be our friend. Follow us on our Facebook page. Follow us on Instagram. We have a website, howtolovelitpodcast.com, that has all kind of teaching materials And, of course, all the episodes of all the past books that we've done. Come along and be part of our fun ride. Peace out. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.